Okay, all right. Um, I need to uh, tell you that <clears throat> this last Sunday and this Sunday, uh, Torin and I have been managing probably um, the most difficult two passages that we have in the New Testament. <laughs> and when Torin asked me, he said, well, why don't you do the second one? I was like, oh, I've got to be on vacation that week for sure. <laughs> But he did it masterfully last week, and today we're going to talk about the second one. So you might take out your Bible, if you have one with you, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, okay? Um, those of you who are real Christians uh, are opening paper Bibles. <clears throat> the rest of you are Gnostics. <clears throat> what you know is sort of fluttering in the air someplace. Anyway, so First uh, Peter chapter 3, all right? Now, um, um, some places in the Bible are pretty easy to understand. Fair enough. And you just read them through and you go, yeah, I get what's going on there and I get how to use it. There's some places in the Bible which are really tough to understand and that's what we have in front of us today. But what I would like to do is just try and exercise with you that I really I do it in the classroom all the time, something like this, and I've never done it in church before, but I realize that TLC is a different kind of place, and a lot of you guys are students, and so you're going to be back in student mode, and I'm going to be on autopilot for a minute. <laughs> so bear with me. Um, let me. Let me show you this picture that comes, uh, it's a very famous photograph, um, and actually what I'd like to do is ask how many of you who are under the age of 35 can tell me the background and the explanation of this photograph. Raise your hand if you can. Oh my gosh. All right, I don't, there's one. Okay, so there's one Christian over there. <laughs> Nobody, that's really incredible. All right, now you look at this photo and you say to yourself, ah, well, this is a woman who is crying, screaming maybe, I think she's screaming, and there's somebody in front of her laying face down on the street. That's all I got, okay? And therefore, when I look at the picture, all I can do is tell you about the picture from where I stand. The only information I have about this is it looks like a fairly old photo, it, and, and it, there's a crisis of some kind, done. That's all I've got. Because we can only see things from where we stand. But if I can make you stand in a different place, you're going to see things very differently. Does that make sense? All right. So anyway, this is one of the most famous photographs of the entire 20th century. Um, many of my students, all right, those of you who are over 45, <laughs> how many of you recognize it? They'll all say yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, a student in the last hour said to me, uh, it always shows up in history books in high school, okay? But those of you who skipped that chapter didn't recognize it, so there we are. This is very famous. It lives at the Smithsonian. Um, this is, I can tell you the names of the people. That's Mary Ann Vecchio, who is kneeling over Jeffrey Miller. It was taken on May 4th, 1970. And this is the shooting at Kent State University in Ohio, outside of Cleveland. Now, the background for this is that uh, this is a period from 1965 up through 70 and beyond where there, the Vietnam War is raging. And actually, this is a period I lived through, and many of my friends, I missed it, but many of my friends were drafted and just taken out of their context right out of high school, straight to Vietnam, and many of them died. So there were protests on campuses all over the United States, and they came to a peak right around 1970, 
And the night before, the protest group at Kent State University had burned down the ROTC building, ROTC, the military training building, burned it down. And then the next day, they were going to march on the street to end the war in Vietnam. The, the uh, governor of Ohio was so mad about the ROTC building that he just told the National Guard, I want you on the scene for these and do whatever you have to do to stop the protest. Wow. That's license, right? So anyway, during the protest, one of the National Guard soldiers basically saw this guy here, Jeffrey Miller, marching and protesting and shot him dead. It was amazing. It was the first time in American history that the National Guard, of, uh, a section of the army in America, killed one of our own citizens. And it was published in the New York Times, and the Times said, America has never been the same. That is why <clears throat> this picture actually belongs in the Smithsonian. Now, what I try to do by telling you all of that is because I am saying, if you stand in a different place, suddenly that picture takes on a whole different meaning, doesn't it? This is not just a woman who was crying on the street. This is a woman who just came out of a protest with one of her friends, Jeffrey Miller, with her, and he has just been shot. He bleeds out, he dies on the scene. This is a part of American history, and it's all about Vietnam, it's all about protest, and it's about military police and the National Guard. Wow, what an amazing story. Now, when we read 1 Peter, we can only understand as much as possible from where we stand, right? We only can understand from where we're going. And so when we open 1 Peter, if we don't have that larger context, we can really easily misrepresent the thing. We can. So therefore, what we want to do is have the widest, deepest understanding possible because if we don't have that wider, deeper understanding, we will misrepresent Peter's intentions. If you say to me, that is a picture just of a woman crying, I will say to you, yeah, and you've got about 5% of it right. The other 95% is beyond your grasp, but you can get there if somebody explains it to you. Now, let's look uh, at that 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll go with the first set. We'll go with seven verses. That's all we're going to cover. And this is really a pairing with what Torin so carefully worked with last week when he talked about slavery. Both passages are tough. Let's read them. First of all, Peter wants to talk to wives inside of a Christian church in a mixed marriage, all right? Now, you'll see this as we go along, but it's a woman who is married to a man who is either Jewish or Roman, but certainly not Christian, and she has to figure out how to do this. Wives, in the same way, okay, so in the same way, so he's talking about something previously he has just said, so therefore what he has to say about slaves, he also wants to say now about marriages, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Hmm. When they see the purity and reverence of your life, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Elaborate hairstyles actually is it's, it's braiding, it's braiding of hair. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. 
They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. So you are her daughters, Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now hold on to the word fear. We'll come back to that for a minute. So you can see these are directions for wives living in these marriages, and you can see why this is not a popular paragraph. Amen? Just wait till the next verse. Now Peter wants to talk to husbands in a, what I imagine is a new Christian marriage. And I imagine he is a new Christian and therefore he has figuring out how he should live with his wife. He only has one verse for them. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And it, boy, there it is. <laughs> I wonder who likes that phrase less. My wife or my daughters? Anyway, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Okay, so there we have it. This is going to be fun, right? All right. So if we take these verses that we have in front of us, these seven verses, it would be very easy to misrepresent them if you don't have the context right. You might read them to me and say, well, this is really what Peter is saying here. And I'll say to you, you've got 5% of it right, but the other 95, you've completely got wrong. It's just like with that Kent State picture. Some Christians have done this. They have lifted this passage out of its context and the results have been tragic. Some men have used these words to disrespect their wives, calling it, God's mandate for their lives as Christian men. Some men have seen this as an opportunity to dominate their wives. Some women have endured that disrespect, even abuse, thinking that that is God's will. So let's just simply be clear. This is a passage that has been lifted out of 1 Peter and people have used this in all kinds of mischievous ways. Peter would want to have nothing to do with that kind of thing. This is not on his mind. And for us to understand what is on his mind, we have to rebuild the story a little bit. But once you get it, then you're going to say, I get what Peter is about here, and it makes sense. But it's different than where we are today. So there are a number of things. I've just made a little bullet list, okay, for you. And these are the things that you and I need to understand if we're going to get this story. So let's do a little background work. It's going to be a little bit nerdy, but that's TLC loves that kind of stuff. I know if I don't explain some Greek to you, you'll be so disappointed. Now, first of all, I built a map for you uh, this week. Um, here's the map that is up on the screen here. Um, this is, of course, the Mediterranean world. If you look up in the upper right-hand corner, that big body of land is current Turkey, or we call it Anatolia or Asia Minor. Now, what was happening in the period of time where 1 Peter is penned is that the Roman Empire had conquered and was actually colonizing that whole period of uh, that whole area of Anatolia. And so what they did is they basically wanted to Romanize these, these places and they collected together foreigners in the major Roman cities, especially in Rome, and they exiled them. They were looking for people who just didn't fit in, who didn't have the right culture, who did not understand the Roman temple, who never really knew how to live correctly in the empire. 
So they targeted these foreigners, not Roman enough, people who didn't have the right religion, especially, right culture, and they sent them off and they put them in these outer places. Now, you can see that if you look at the first verse that's at the top of the screen, this is the group that Peter is writing to. Notice what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the great scattering or dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I've placed on the map all of those places that Peter is describing. He is writing to Christians who are living in exile. So imagine, they are people who lived in Rome, very likely. They are told because of their difference, they have got to go. Now, the Emperor Claudius was doing this throughout his reign from 41 to 54, but Claudius decided he was tired of having Jews in Rome, and he didn't like the Christians, in his mind, they're Jews anyway. We know what the, they know what the Jews believe. Christians, they're not sure about that. But they took the whole group in AD 49, and they shipped them out of Rome. In Acts 18.2, you can see a reference to it, because some of the exiles ended up in Corinth. So anyway, what you have here in this story is Jews and Christians whose lives, their livelihoods, their homes, everything is in Rome. They dress like Romans, they speak like Romans, all of that, but there's a difference. And the Romans know there's a difference. So get out of town. So imagine this, you have been lifted out of Rome, lost everything, you have been shipped to Bithynia. Now I gotta tell you guys this, Asia is a pretty cool place to go. Ephesus is in Asia, that's a cool place. But Bithynia and Pontus, you are going to the outback. This is really the end of the empire. This is the frontier. And there are small towns out there everywhere that are surrounded by the Roman military. And therefore, these families actually are lifted. Imagine being with 100 families. You are lifted into a small town, and there you are deposited. And the Romans say, Romanize this. Good luck. Get out of Rome. So the Christian communities that are out there in a place like Bithynia, you can imagine how tough their life would have been. These Christians are living under real duress. They describe themselves as exiles of the great scattering. This is a metaphor about the Christian life, probably. And we were all exiles for sure. But we think this is geography here. You would live in that little town, marginalized, questioned, trying to fit in, suspicious, fearful for sure. You are foreigners who have been forced in, foreigners. So you are aliens, you are at risk all of the time and everyone is watching you. I have a good friend whose name I can't give you because of what I'm gonna tell you right now, who decided that God was calling him to a Muslim country. He wanted to be the most challenging Muslim country ever. And he has spent his career in Uzbekistan. It's a tough place to be, really tough. And they, being a missionary there is illegal. And he loses, and and he comes back, I say to him, "Ah, what's it like? What's it like to be a a Christian? How do you live this? And he goes, everybody is watching because they know we are Western. We're not Uzbekis, we are Western. And therefore you have to live your life perfectly because the slightest infraction, they will send you out of the country. All right, so the first thing I know is that these are Christians and Jews who are living in the faraway reaches of the Roman Empire, okay? So the second idea is this. There is what I call a necessary adaptation. If you're going to live in this kind of environment, 
you're going to have to figure out what is essential to my family and how is it that I can accommodate the ancient culture of all of the people who are around me. Necessary adaptation. I mean, it would be really like a Christian family that somehow, some way, was moved from Pennsylvania to Saudi Arabia. I mean, solid conservative Muslim country. They would know in Saudi Arabia that you're a foreigner and they're watching everything that you do. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, you will see what Peter has to say about this. <clears throat> he says, okay, dear friends, I urge you to live as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So live a righteous life. That's what my friend in Uzbekistan said. You live a righteous life. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's Peter's overarching theme. So how can you live and as an exile of the great scattering in a small village in Bithynia and survive? If there's a small Christian church there, and there probably was, or they begin to build a synagogue there, how are you going to adapt to the environment you're in? So the third thing that, that Peter has got to tell these people is be subject to those who are around you. So if you are a foreigner... Since everyone is watching you, you have got to put on a visible display of submission. If the culture is going this direction, you have to ask yourself, can I go that direction? They are looking for ways that you don't fit in. And especially it comes with religion. Now, in a town like this, a Roman outpost like this, they would certainly have their temples, their festivals, sacrifices, priests, and your devotion to that Roman religion guaranteed that the town would be prosperous. Because if you were worshiping Apollos or Jupiter or something, and somehow you had a many people inside of the town who just didn't believe in the Roman gods, the Roman gods would withdraw their blessing. So therefore, you have an now incoming group of refugees coming from Rome, Jews and Christians, and they don't believe in the Roman gods, the population of the village is going to see you as a threat. The Roman gods will withdraw their blessing. We don't like you here. We don't want you here. You are perverting our welfare. You're ruining our lives. So that is why Peter says, look, if you're going to survive in this context, there are three things that will be flashpoints for you. First of all, live as a good citizen. Submit yourself. Come under the government around which you live. So my friend in Uzbekistan says, I never speed. I never speed. Because I have to submit myself. I want to be an exemplary citizen. So the first thing Peter says is, you are an exemplary citizen. That's what he says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Second thing is, the second flashpoint is slavery. Well, the Roman world had millions of slaves. Rome's slave population was enormous. And they were always watching for slave rebellions. When you have a large slave population in your city, they have got power. And if they united, oh my gosh, there's serious trouble. So what if... 
Christianity, what if the Christian faith, what if the church was known as an enclave that welcomes in slaves and then tells them about their freedom in Christ? Suddenly, the church becomes a social platform that emancipates slaves. Do you see what's going to happen? The Romans will find out about this. They will smash the church. They will shut it down immediately. We know this because Romans did this all over the empire. So therefore, in this fragile setting, in this early first generation of the church, go slow on this whole slavery question. Third flashpoint. Women and men inside of marriage. And that's our topic today, of course. So how is this a flashpoint? Does something happen inside of the Christian faith that would be viewed as disrespectful in the broader culture? See, Peter is interested in the survival of you as Christians in this outpost, in this first generation. And he wants to make sure that you are able to give an effective witness where you are. So therefore, Peter is saying in these three things, conform to the expectations of your culture as best you can. All right, the next one is marriage. This is the other background. I'm just simply going doing with this passage what we did with the Vietnam picture. The second, the last, this one is marriage. So what you, well, let's be absolutely clear here. Let's be clear about what is going on in marriage in this time. There is not a single woman inside of this church that is living a life that is even remotely similar to what was happening 2,000 years ago in a place like Pontus. A woman's position in the home was completely different. It wasn't terrible, but you know, you might think it's terrible. It was patriarchal through and through. It was restrictive. There was very little development of your ideas or your gifts or your education. When we, think about, when we think about how we understand women's rights in the side of this era, in any culture in this period, we actually have some measures that we take. Um, it would be things like this. Does a woman have the right of inheritance? It's a very big question. Does she? No, she doesn't in the ancient world. Today, we just take this for granted. No inheritance. Does she have the right to choose relationships, such as, can you choose, fall in love with and choose, the man you're going to marry? No, you do not. Your father is going to pick that for you. Do you have the ability to pursue an education or a job? No, you don't. Do you have the freedom of movement? No, you don't. Great place, huh? It's nice. Now, inside of the larger Greek and Roman cities, in the urban centers, we know that women's freedom was actually taking, getting traction because we have evidence that women did own some businesses, they had some private property, they could even vote, and they could hold office. But that was in the major cities like Rome and Corinth and so forth. We're talking about Pontus here. We're talking about Bithynia here. We're talking about the outer reaches here. And do you think those places are progressive or not? No, they're not at all. So Peter is urging the women of Asia Minor to live a life that is respectable inside of their own society so they can survive. Now it's clear he understands that women can be an influence inside of this society, okay? So if they are Christians and they behave with self-respect with all of these ancient norms, 
They can be a witness. Here, let me give you an example of, of how this sort of works out in a kind of funny, but a kind of a curious way. So I, uh, I do go to the Middle East a fair bit, and um, so I have done this. People watching for me is a hobby in the Middle East. So standing in Cairo on a street right next to the Starbucks, which I love in Cairo. I'm just saying, if you're ever in Cairo, go to the Starbucks. They have great air conditioning in the summer. Anyway, um, and coming toward me is a very cool-looking couple. You know, he's got black slacks. It's 150 degrees outside. He has long black slacks, shoes, dress shoes. He has a white shirt on, very carefully, tightly cut hair. He looks really nice, buttoned up all the way to here. And then his wife next to him is wearing what's called a jalabiya. It falls from the shoulder all the way down to the ankle. She's classy, though, because it's got embroidery all over it that looks so cool. Underneath, she could be wearing a dress from Paris, but you'll never see it. So she's dressing like this, and then she has a headscarf, which is wrapped around her neck. But she sees me in front of her, a Westerner, a man by himself. So her first instinct is to grab her scarf and throw it across her face and just toss it over her shoulder. She knows what it means to be religious, to love God, to live a life of piety, to, to just live a life that's respecting the culture around them. Now, all of the stuff she's wearing is expensive. Let me tell you, I've looked at it inside. Of the, the scarf is from Paris. The, the chalabia is really expensive. But she knows she looks just the way she should. They walk past me. They're Muslims. And I know to myself, I go, modern Muslims, they're cool. They got money. Off they go to their BMW. Then coming toward me is another couple. These are stereotypes. If my Egyptian friends hear this, ugh. He is dressed in super tight jeans. <laughs> he has a white shirt on too, short sleeve, and it's unbuttoned down to here, and he has about 15 gold chains. He has no beard. The Muslim guy had a beard. He has no beard. He's clean shaven, and he has longish hair, which is oh so fashionable. She, on the other hand, is wearing four-inch heels. She has a skirt. She has a, shall we say, a fairly tight-fitting uh, top on of some kind. She has large, visible hair and no scarf. Now, as they come toward me, I look to my side and say, Egyptian, modern, cool Christians. Now, what's really interesting in that culture is they are code-signaling to the rest of society who they are in terms of their Christian, their religious faith. Now, if that Muslim couple turned around and saw that other couple, do you think the Muslims would view them as religious, as spiritual, would they? No, too much skin, too much hair, and too many necklaces. What in the world? So therefore, you can see that inside of these cultures, you code signal to the rest of the people around you how you stand in that society. Now, so Peter is saying here, <clears throat> my last idea is, this is all about the witness, the public witness that you put into the world. The aim of everything Peter is writing is so that the husband in a mixed marriage might be enticed to become a Christian. Not with words, but with works. So again, you want to go back and look at chapter 2, verse 11. You say, Peter's view is, what we want to do is adopt and conform our lives as best we can to the culture in which we live so that the church will not be criticized. 
Um, one of the most interesting things, I, I, I've got some friends who are, well, young women in various cities, and I was, I was walking around in Damascus one time with a friend of mine. She was about 30 years old, married, and from, we were breaking the rules anyway to walk through the market. Me, not married to her, I'm walking with her. Oh well, we broke the rules. But I wanted her to interpret to me all of the women walking by and tell me if they were faithful Muslims or they were secular Muslims. And she said, this will be fun. I can just tell you by their clothes. And she analyzed every single woman who came down the line. And that really made me see that the way in which we present ourselves in society signals to society who we are. Um, a, number of, a few years ago, um, I had one of my students uh, who took an internship in the capital of Jordan, Amman, Jordan, She's a wonderful young woman who decided to work in uh, Jordan for six months with young Muslim women who were married probably when they were 17. And they were about 25 years old and they wanted to know things like accounting, how to take care of money at home, even how to do electrical stuff at home. They were learning household maintenance basically is what it was. So my student lived over here and the ministry was over there where they met with these women and she had to walk through the Arab market every day. Now, my student actually just, she told me all this in detail, so I got it all down. Jeans, a t-shirt, normal, just hair out like this. And as she went through the market, people spit at her. They swore at her. They said things you wouldn't imagine. And by the time she got to her ministry, she was just in tears. She said, I can't walk here. This is terrible. And the young Muslim women said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to dress her. She loved this moment. She told me it more than once. So first of all, they put a long robe on her all the way down. They said, but you're not Muslim, so we're not going to make you Muslim right now. So we'll give you a scarf for your shoulders, and now we're going to the markets. <laughs> they went into the market to the women's shopping area, and they bought her a new wardrobe. You want to know what the wardrobe was? It was really, I thought it was hilarious. And I'm not sure that, um, yeah, it, first of all, they bought her these pants that were tight at the ankle, tight at the waist. Brenda, what are these things? They're sort of like, and they're really balloony. Yeah, harem pants. Does anybody know? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. They're kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Minda, wear these. They, she got like six of these, okay? Then after that, they bought her the universal Middle Eastern top of modesty. It's a tunic that comes down to here. It's a little opening here, like so, tunic, all the way down, right? A bunch of those, and then headscarves. And then they went back to the ministry place, and they said, okay, great, let's change her, let's dress her. And they put on the harem pants, the tunic, they put a scarf over her shoulders to show that she knows how to handle modesty, but not over her head, because she's not Muslim. And then they said, okay, go back to the market. <laughs> and she went alone through the market, and it was perfectly silent. Everyone in the market said, yes, here is a woman of respect. Here's a woman who understands our culture. She's not just a foreigner. She is somebody who has decided to be modest. Wow, she came back and all of the young women just cracked up because they said, see, you just don't know how to get dressed. So when Peter is writing to women in chapter three, let's talk about his directions for women. It is clear here in the passage that the husband is not a believer. We know that. But there is a problem. 
which we would not see inside of the passage. The religion of a household in Roman society belonged to the father. If the father of the household is Jewish, everybody is Jewish. If he erects household altars, and they have a lot of these, we find them, they're in museums all over, but most people, they're about this, they're stone, they're about this high, and you put small statues on top of them in your home. If he is worshiping Apollos, you have to do the same. The father directs the religion of the entire household. You don't have any freedom. Everybody has to comply. So therefore, here is our situation. Suddenly in the church, we have a wife striking out on her own, different from her husband, saying that she believes in Jesus. He is suspicious. He is threatened. He will talk to other husbands. He will forbid her to have this faith. He can do this by law. He can refuse to let her outside so she cannot meet with any groups. She, he can have her publicly disciplined. So therefore, Peter is saying to these women, you are now a new Christian believer inside of this culture that is going to be hostile to you. This is pragmatic advice. So therefore, he says, live a life, therefore, which will delight your husband in your transformation. Therefore, you are going to live a life and your husband is going to look at this new woman he's married to and he's going to say, there's something admirable here. Hmm. Look, the New Testament teaches clearly that in Christ, both male and female are equal. Galatians 3.28, if you need the address. In Ephesians 5.21, Paul says that when a Christian marriage comes together and there's a man and woman in Christ, they submit to one another. It is all about mutual submission. Here, Peter has to address something very delicate. Very delicate. It is a woman who then is living under a non-Christian man who has incredible power. So therefore, Peter says, all right, so her beauty should be found in her innermost self. That's the way you should be beautiful, not in outward excessive displays. Few people would disagree with this. Of course, it's for men and women. But the braiding of hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and expensive fashion are all listed in every Greek and Roman writer about what it means to look like a person who really has self-respect. This does not mean that today women cannot wear gold or braid their hair. But that stuff is code signaling inside of the Roman world. These are culture codes for modesty. That was what Peter has to address. So therefore, he says, her demeanor should be that of a gentle person, a quiet spirit. This is how the New Testament describes men and women. But here, Peter is saying, don't be the opposite. Don't be someone known for a violent disposition. Imagine this. A Roman man, not sympathetic to Christianity, a Christian wife, she really does resent his control over her life. And therefore, she begins to think about her faith as an opportunity to push back. Can you see how that would work? For her, it becomes opposition. So Peter is saying, no, no that isn't the way it's supposed to be. The aim is 
that when you are married to a non-Christian, the grace and goodness of God would so erupt inside of your life, he would see this and he would take a step closer to Jesus. He would be converted not with words, but with deeds. Um, you know, you, you've all heard of Augustine, St. Augustine. So St. Augustine had a mother who was a Christian who prayed for him constantly. And, you know, he lived a wild life. You know that too. That's why he wrote a book called The Confessions. Anyway, he lived a wild life. And his mother, and he becomes a Christian. But what most people don't know, this is hidden away in the Confessions, is that his father was not a Christian. His father was actually quite opposed to it. And his mother always wanted to tell her husband the gospel. Words, words, words. And she gave up. And therefore, she decided that she would live such a life of excellent demeanor. It would entice him toward the faith. And that is what brought Augustine's father to the Christian faith. It was the life lived by his wife. Amazing, isn't it? Now, I want you to stand back and notice something else that's really obvious here, but we, th we don't think about it. Paul is, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter is addressing women directly communicating directly with them and not through their husbands. Inside of this culture, it would be indiscreet for me to have a direct correspondence or a direct conversation with someone like Brenda sitting right here. I should not do that. If I want to write Brenda, I should write Torin and ask Torin to tell Brenda something because I should not be talking directly to her. That's remarkable. So therefore... Cross-gender communication must be indirect. That's the way the culture works. So here, Peter is talking directly to a woman. In other words, these he's calling, you are a daughter of Sarah. You have real agency in your family. Roman and Greek letters never do that kind of thing. It's amazing. All right, now let me talk about husbands for a moment because here I think we have something really critical happening. Um, in verse 7, Peter is writing to men, husbands in a marriage. I, they are Christians. They are in the church. We don't know anything about their family and their wives, but he wants to say something to them, but they only get one verse. Now, when we think about this, we notice <clears throat> um, he cannot live in a marriage any way he wishes. So in other words, if a man becomes a Christian and is inside of the church, and regardless of his wife, he is not now in Christ free to do whatever he wants. He has to experience conversion inside of his marriage. It's the same idea. Both of them have to live under orders. There are things for her to do, and there are things for him to do. Now, I, I gotta tell you, here Peter is talking to a Roman man, exhorting him about how he should conduct himself. Do you know how amazing? In his marriage, no less. This is weird. Because my marriage is my domain. I am the father of the family, it was called. And therefore, I have my private affairs, and don't you get into my private business. Well, Peter's going to do that and more. Because he says, he writes, and if you look at the translation here, the New International Version is always really squeamish when it comes to S-E-X. And I don't really know how to do it in here because I don't know the range of ages in here. So I'm going to let you use your imagination and fill in. Because I know some of you at Cornerstone don't really know much about this kind of thing. <clears throat> 
I had to work that in because I can see that. So the NIV says here in verse 7, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Now, so I've got to give you, here's the nerdy part. If you're nerdy, listen up. But if you're not, you're on vacation. The Greek word for house is oikos. Got it? Oikos, okay? And to dwell somewhere is oikeo. You can hear oikeo, oikos, same root, all right? So it means to dwell in a house. So to live with someone, you simply put the prefix on, soon, which means together, S-Y-N in English, soon oikeo means to live with someone, okay? All right, so that's the verb that he actually uses here. And it says here, so when you soon oikeo, then you need to live considerately. Now, what is this term? Soon oikeo doesn't simply mean to live alongside of somebody. In the Greek literature of this period, it actually means to cohabitate. Do you get it? So therefore, you live with someone in which there is, shall I just simply say, intimacy. I think we have some English phrases for this, but I'm not going to use them. No way. So therefore, what Peter says, okay, so the husband, if he is a Christian, when he lives in an intimate relationship with his wife, his conversion should show a difference in the way they conduct themselves. He is not to be demanding or selfish, but considerate and sensitive and caring. That is what the phrase means. So therefore, live intimately with your wife, being wise and considerate. That's the phrase that's there. Then he says, I can't believe he would say this to a Roman husband, respect her. To tell a Roman man to respect his wife is incredible. You know, you don't have to tell me this, to respect my wife. I have privileges. I live in my household. I can dismiss my slaves. I can kill my slaves. I can dismiss my wife. I have privileges. I can do anything I want inside of my household. And Peter says, respect her. Whoa, that's incredible. So, therefore... Peter knows what holiness should look like for the converted husband. It should have an effect on the most intimate aspects of our lives together inside of a marriage. Now, I want you to go back to verse 6 for a minute and notice that what Paul, Peter does not want is he does not want the women to live in a marriage with fear. So therefore, if you live with a husband who shows you respect and kindness and thoughtfulness, Fear, as we know, begins to dissipate. <clears throat> then there is my daughter's favorite phrase. <clears throat> so therefore, I urge you, uh, so he, he writes, um, treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner. Terrific. Now, this actually means the more vulnerable vessel, the one that can break most easily. And Christians throughout time have actually had various views on this. Does this mean that a woman is morally and spiritually deficient? No. That's not what this is about. Not at all. And that has been the teaching that has been lifted out of this place in 1 Peter, and we should abandon it. Does Peter mean that she is physically vulnerable? We don't have to go far to talk about the anatomy of men and women to see something about physical prowess differences. 
But when we look at this and we say that, well, okay, it's about women living in a marriage in fear. That needs to be gone. It's about a man, a Christian man, having a sexual relationship with his wife that is known for respect and sensibility and caring and all of this. We think that what Peter is actually talking about here is sexual abuse. Non-consensual sex inside of a marriage which a man thinks he can require of his wife. And Peter says, no, we don't do that. This is what it means to be a holy husband. It should have a direct effect on intimacy and sensibility. Now, this thinking... This ain't thinking that there is mutuality like this, there is respect and honor going back and forth, is at odds with all of Roman culture. You just don't find it in there at all. So therefore, in Peter's mind, Christian marriage has no room for a domineering, abusive, controlling relationship. Respect and righteousness are the hallmarks of our life together. And the Romans will see this, especially Roman women, And they will say, I want a husband like that. (laughs) All right, so what do we do with all of this material? What do we do with this? Two observations for us, I think, in this very tough passage. The first is this. Peter is answering a good question that we are not asking today. Let's be honest about that. He's asking a great question. If you live in Bithynia and you happen to have a husband who is building altars inside of your living room so you will worship Jupiter, well, you really have the same situation. But if that's not you, this is pretty foreign to your life. But Peter is still getting at something vital, and I think you and I need to take note. When we think about our witness in the world and in our families We need to read the culture with discernment. What is it inside of our culture that signals a man or woman who loves God? And what is it that we can signal inside of our lives and our demeanor that says, nope, we're really secular when we get out into the world? Sometimes we may have to limit our freedoms because of our witness, because they will be misunderstood. There are a lot of Christians in a city like Beirut, Lebanon, and when I'm in a place like Beirut, I may be at a nice restaurant, right? And I'll see there's a lot of Muslims all around me, and I'm there as a Westerner, and they know that we are probably Christians. And my host will say to me, Gary, would you like a glass of wine with dinner? My answer is automatic. Don't even have to think about it. What do you think it is, yes or no? Absolutely not, because there isn't a Muslim inside of that room that's going to touch alcohol. I am giving up my freedom so that I will have a public witness. Hmm. So the question Peter has for us is, how are you shaping your behavior to strengthen your witness? How are you shaping your behavior to strengthen your witness? Here's my second idea, the last one I wanted to give you. God's call on our lives includes the most intimate things about us. Amen? God's call in our lives is not just simply to show up here at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. God's call in our lives is comprehensive. So therefore, that call affects our relationships, our marriages, and even our sexual selves. 
So the question is, how has Christ made you different in all of these things? Is a dating relationship different when Jesus is present? Just discuss that with your friends. Or are you just like all of the dating relationships you stream all the time on Netflix? Is a marriage different when Jesus is present? Huh. Is sexual intimacy different when Jesus is present? Whoa. Peter might say, if we are not different than the world around us in these most private of things, it's fair to ask. Maybe Jesus isn't present. So he urges that our transformation in Christ will be visible, especially to those who are watching us in our families as well as outside, because those people are wondering if the faith we possess, the faith we profess, is true and worth adopting for themselves. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us discernment to bring and draw holiness, righteousness into every aspect of our private lives so that we have a visible transformation that is admired by all we live with. We pray in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen.